Welcome to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander. Bunker de France is here. Todd yep. Roberts is on the phone, along with our guests, Stuart Rosebrook and David Lincoln is here as well. It is a full house out a full ranch house out at the White Stallion Ranch from where we are streaming live our movie Saturday program. This program is part de of the de. That's French. Oh, that sounds like me when you ask the question. Duh. No, duh. that's duh. Uh, duh. And, uh, well, part... it's, it's me after too many drinks. <laughs> it's part duh of, the, uh, of what makes a great screenplay. Well, it is doable. It, it, duh. All right. Why don't you go ahead and, con- and continue the conversation, Bob? Oh, okay. I've got just a little brief thing before we jump into it. Uh, a friend of mine passed away here just recently. Jackie Lee Whitworth, Jack Whitworth, uh, he was a cowboy. And this guy, you know, this is uh, the kind of thing, you know, a lot of times when you say cowboy, you think of a guy with a hat on, a pair of boots, and you think that's a cowboy. And Jack was the real deal. In fact, what was so interesting and kind of like an eye-opener for me at the funeral service was there was about six or eight cowboys there. And... I'll tell you what, you can tell the difference when you see these guys in a city cowboy or a lot of guys that think they're cowboy. And these guys didn't have to say a word or do anything. They just, it was, you know, it made a lot of the movie cowboys look like sissies. (laughs) Anyhow, Jack's gone. I miss him. And and the cowboy world will be a little less for the loss of him. Okay, now... Harry's doing things, so who wants to start off about screenplays? Harry Harry is busy trying to fix something ah. <laughs> and is about to pop open a Jack Daniels because that will rectify it. Make, make a double there, huh? Yeah. Well, as long as we're going to... You mean when you pour Jack Daniels on the equipment, it works better? Hell no. No, no, no. Well, Harry me. does, though. In me. Okay. <laughs> let's, kick, let's kick it off. Let's kick it off about and talk about a, a, someone we always talk about as a director, but who's also a very effective and strong-minded screenwriter, uh, Sam Peckinpah. Yes. And I was doing a little research on Sam and um, had remembered that he had been very involved in One-Eyed Jacks. And, um, as you know, if you you actually really examine Sam's uh, whole career and his uh, arc of his uh, production, his director and writer, he really had a great arc that he was investigating through his writing and his directing of the West from Deadly Companions all the way up through, you know, do I dare say, uh, even, you know, beyond, you know, Convoy, right? You know, um, his, you know, his interpretation of the men and women of the West and the landscape. But one, uh, one eye jacks when it comes to screenwriting is kind of, is pretty interesting because it's so convoluted. And, um, I uncovered the fact that the, um, the original screenwriter was Rod Serling. He was hired uh, to adapt the novel called The Authentic Death of Henry Jones by Charles Nader at the request of a producer named Frank P. Rosenberg. We needed a little research on it to see what else Frank did in his career. And um, it was uh, it had fictionalized the Billy the Kid story and had moved it to uh, California. 
in the uh, uh, Sterling, if you can believe it, his adaptation was rejected. So then uh, they hired Sam, and um, Sam did a couple of drafts, and Brando fired him. And then uh, well, they so jump on, that, jump right in there, Todd. Well, that it, 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 it is a lot. There's a lot between point A and point B there, my good friend Stuart, in that he was calling Brando on the phone and going through what he had written, and Brando would um, would he would throw things off of Brando as a sounding board, and Brando would come back with yes or no, maybe twist go left, go right, instead of blue, go red, whatever. And this went on for a while. And Sam kept saying, um, why don't I come over to Universal and meet those guys and, and let's talk about it. You know, I'll go with you and we'll talk. No, no, Brando kept saying, no, 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 I got it. I got it. It's okay. And eventually what happened was, you know, Brando just said, uh, you know what, um, I appreciate everything you've done, but they want to go a different direction. And you're right. He dumped Sam, and then Sam was left out in the cold. Brando went on to make it as one-eyed jacks. But that was the beginning seed work for Sam Peckinpah's uh, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Those... He wrote that screenplay twice, and he also wrote The Wild Bunch twice. The first time The Wild Bunch became Via Rides with uh, Yul Brenner and Charles Bronson, and and that eventually was stolen from him. So this right. happened to, Bron- to Peckinpah twice. It shows that if you if you stay stay the course, you will persevere eventually. Does uh, anybody have any idea if any of his writing for uh, One-Eyed Jack survived in the final print? Well, I think that the... the, the I know for a fact that the line um, that Brando says to Malden in jail, which is, um, they got him in jail, they're going to hang him. And he says, uh, um, or they're going to, he's got him in jail. I don't know if they're going to hang him yet, but they got him in jail. And he says, and he comes to visit him. He says, you know, kid, this is unfortunate. You know, I, I hate to see you in this position. And he's trying to, somewhat um, uh, pacify him and, and lull him into some complacency. And um, he says, Brando looks at him, he goes, you know, uh, the people of this town have not seen, uh, you know, you're like a coin. And they haven't seen the other side of that coin, which is your other face. Who the real you, the, the, the bank robber, the the killer, and so on. Everybody thinks of you as the sheriff, but that's not the real you. I've seen it. I know it. And that that is some of the stuff that survived from Peck and Paul. That's a great, that's a great scene there, because he goes, you know, Dad, I've seen the other side. Yeah, it's really, to me, and I know I have this theory, and I say it all the time, but I find it often that really great films have a really great scene that is the epitome of the film. That's where it all kind of comes together. You know, yes, there are other scenes that are involved and so on, but that scene is the film. And in that film, that is the scene that does that. You know, me. another thing about that film, which is very much a sidebar, but is interesting, is the fact that 
it had such an impact on the uh, street gunfighters, especially like out at Old Tucson and stuff, and Scum Sucking Pig and uh, some of the other dialogue yeah. became a, a, a backbone of the street shows. From One Eye Jacks? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The other funny thing about that screenplay is, um, which does not translate into what we're talking about in that screenplay, but it took Brando, um, uh, you know, he he got to a point where he was so, uh, he had become, he had almost more metamorphosized himself into Orson Welles. <laughs> it took him three, three full days to shoot the final scene where he where he says goodbye to the girl on mm-hmm. the beach and he rides up the coast with the waves and the clouds. Every time he looked at the dailies, he said, the clouds aren't right. And they kept saying to him, well, you know, um, do, you, do you think anybody's really going to notice the clouds? He goes, well, of course they are. They're in the frame, aren't they? And uh, as if the clouds were the most, you know, as important as her acting or her emotions or his or whatever, the costumes and so on. And uh, he kind of, he definitely went overboard. He lost himself in the midst of that film. Well, just to be no, honest, no, I think that was the greatest clouds ever in the final shot of a movie. <laughs> what are you going to say, Stuart? Well, I was going to say that the final screenwriter was Guy Trosper, who, uh, you know, who one of us would probably remember off the top of our heads. But um, he uh, had worked, He had actually won a Writers Guild of America Awards for a, a movie called Devil's Doorway. Have you guys seen Devil's Doorway? Oh, yes. Robert That's Taylor? a great movie. That's uh, Bob Taylor, right? And uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that eventually that uh, obviously Brando would have recognized Anthony Mann um, for his style of directing. He was looking to try to produce a Western Directed Western with that edge, you know that you know Anthony Mann is one of the edgiest directors of westerns in that era, and so it's interesting that he hires Trosper, who you know had worked with Mann to bring uh, an edge to what he you know his vision was. Also talks about that Stanley Kubrick, who was no uh, slouch at writing or directing, also from the picture, and Brando took over to direct. So why they? Uh, I, I think you know the life of a screenwriter. You know, um, there was a, um, a line that Sam shared with my dad once. He said, uh, Sam described himself sometimes in Hollywood, says, I'm, I'm like an old whore, I go where I'm kicked. And um, so a lot of times, you know, writers work uh, for months and months and pour themselves into a screenplay. And um, at least people remember Sam as uncredited. You know, there's a there's a lot of screenwriters whose you know material either doesn't see in the light of day, or what they uh, they wrote um, becomes um, edited or changed or used from uh, whether it's for television or film from from it was to uh, something completely different. Um, but I I think it's interesting to um, to as Todd mentioned earlier that Sam um, wrote number of drafts for Pat Garrett the Kid, but he doesn't end up with the uh, the screen credit. The uh, Rudy Wurlitzer gets the screen credit, and um, strangely enough, his movie just before that was uh, Tulane Blacktop. So uh, how does a guy from Tulane Blacktop become Sam's guy on Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? But 
Um, have any of you ever done any research to find out if he was on the set of the film or if Sam was the one directing all the, the line changes and the edits um, of, to the script on set? I think that that's another part of the world of the screenwriter in Westerns is is uh, their relationship, like John Ford with, with Nugent, um, that, uh, you know, that they don't put their name on the script, which I think you see a lot more today where directors don't honor the original script and put their names on it. Um, I would think that Sam had a lot of input on the final dialogue of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. That sounds like an ego problem to me that where a director decides he's going to change the line and then adds his name as a as one of the screenwriters. It's also a financial well, he, thing, too. He, yeah, but he also, I mean, he, he, you know, I'm not defending Sam, but he did write this thing more than once. And so by the time we got to Beth Garrett and Billy the Kid, it was it, it was pretty obvious he was going to make this film one way or another. So this was just his third, second or third try at, 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 at bat. And, you know, he made sure that he was going to get it done. He didn't really care what it took to do. I mean, I think that Stewart's line of, you know, I'm a dog, I go where I'm kicked. You know, this is uh, Sam's view of of Hollywood um, was not favorable. It was probably less favorable than Orson Welles' view of Hollywood was. Um, and definitely much more sarcastic even than Billy Wilder's view of Hollywood was. Y'all, just for a second, I want to go back to Devil's Doorway because it, uh, it shows you what screenwriters can do. The uh, Robert Taylor character, the lead, is an Indian uh, Civil War veteran, Medal of Honor winner, and that's the, in, in that period, in that era, in a Western movie uh, and in a screenplay. That was that was kind of bold, yeah. Most definitely, it, it, to go back and be, to rewatch, not only through Anthony Mann and Robert Taylor, but it, you know, a lot of it. World War II, where um, a lot of the players uh, and directors bring a lot to the to the table through the. He's breaking uh, away up from on me. The overt politics um, in that era, which is also highly regarded for its screenplay, and um, and I, I think that it's uh, Anthony Mann who filmed what at least uh, Winchester '73 is filmed there at Old Tucson. Is that right, Bunker? Yes, yes. it was, uh, and at the White Stallion Ranch. Yes, good Harry. <laughs> and. Uh, <clears throat> But I think Anthony Mann is somebody who you have to look at, like one of those directors who really believes in strong scripts. And I think that all of us who can look back and say, now that's a Western I can rewatch. I want to rewatch it for, um, uh, you know, just these scenes, or I just want to follow this actor through that film. And we can talk about uh, whether it's John Ford or Anthony Mann or John Huston's Westerns. Um, I think, or Sam, is that they had a high regard and belief in that script. And when Sam movies don't work, this is a great example, or Orson Welles don't work, is they go off, they go off the script. They don't, you know, they, uh, they, um, they go off the wheel, you know, too much of the improv. And, um, I think that, uh, 
that is a respect between the director and the writer that really makes what we see in the genre the best of the best. Um, and uh, I was reading today about The Searchers. They, um, Nugent's screenplay, I think, is, is considered one of the top 100 um, the screenplays of all time. Um, but there is a director and writer who knew each other, knew what they wanted, and knew how to develop the characters that could be translated to the screen. I think that that's one of the primary things that makes a great Western screenplay. Only to validate your point, Stuart, is that The Searchers is Martin Scorsese's favorite film, and The Searchers is John Milius's favorite script. And I think that says a lot on both counts. Yes, it Most does. definitely. Most okay, definitely. we got to do our first commercial break here. Before we get to that, um, make some apologies to our listeners who are trying to listen uh, uh, <laughs> to the stream, live stream. Um, we had a storm last night that seems to have done some nonsense to Internet connections down here. And uh, so we're floating in and out on the Internet. And, you know... Uh, check the podcast. You, you know, use your imagination and fill in the gaps. <laughs> Indeed. So with that in mind, we're going to be back, back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. We're doing part two of uh, what makes a great screen play. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts. Our guest is uh, True West Magazine editor Stuart Rosebrook. David Layton's here as well. So we'll be right back after these important messages. Stay tuned. The land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Anderson. Served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient, and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. 
Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Go to legion.org slash honorveterans to find out how you can help. Watch classic Western movies anytime at voicesofthewest.net. on Amo Franzi's uh, Voices of the West. Harry Alexander with you, along with Bunker to Friends. Todd Roberts in Los Angeles. Our guest, Stuart Rosebrook, True West Magazine editor. David Layton's in the uh, room with us as well. We're trying to live stream here from the White Stallion Ranch on Movie Saturday. And our topic is, what makes a great screenplay? And uh, this is part two of that. We've already heard some great Western music. Ray Whitley there, Echo on the Wild Wind. Well, you know, as long as we're doing this, let's. I want to just for a minute spend on uh, news of the world. I saw it this week or last week actually. Uh, Paul Greengrass, the director, was one of the screenwriters, along with where is the other guy here, Luke Davies. And I've got to say, you know, I saw the movie, and I, when it came out, and I thought, gee, it could use some editing. It just it, it long stretches in there, but it's one of those movies that sticks with you for some reason. It won't let you go, and over time, it's those long spells that really, really catch you. But again, it was the way the story was put together, developed. Uh, it, it it wasn't an action western, but it and it had a, two action scenes. One of the action scenes is like a real-time scene. It, it, it just, it's no rushing, there's no, it's just, it, it's, it's like uh, uh, the uh, Duval and, and uh, Cosner Western, the shootout is like what a shootout would be like. And anyhow, I, I just, I was impressed with the movie, and I, I'm surprised because my first reaction was, well, it could use some editing. Now I'm going, what would you cut out? Anybody else see it? I saw it this week. Uh, Dan uh, and I watched the screener of it, and I loved it. I really did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I will agree with you, uh, uh, Bunker. There were moments that might have been a little slow, but I think if you take it all into context that, you know, we look at everything now in comparison of how quickly a TV show moves or how the world right. moves. But, you know, um, I always love that this is why I didn't find it too slow. No. I'll say that. Uh, and the reason I didn't is because I think back on to, for instance, Real Bravo by Howard Hawks with John Wayne. Um, and he said this film, uh, he was interviewed about the film, and he had some very, very strong opinions about why he made it. First of all, he made it, and I do think it's on my list of great screenplays. Um, he said he made it because it is a lesson in patience. He also made it as a yeah. as an answer to uh, Fred Zinnemann's uh, um, uh, High Noon, as an answer to that. He thought that was a horrible film. I didn't. I think that screenplay is also one of my favorites, but... 
He said it was a lesson in patience. And I would say or suggest to you or propose News of the World is a little bit like that. Mm -hmm. It's sweet, and the writing is so good, I found, Amen. that it, you're right. It does stick with you. It, it sticks with you, and it, there's meaning, and you're invested in the characters. You want to see them get ahead. You want to see them succeed. You want to see them survive and, and prosper. And there's moments in the film where I'm like, you know, oh, darn. That's not what I wanted to have happen, and and so on. And then things come back around in different ways. It's it also has a, a few twists in it. They're slow, but they're yeah. beautiful. Oh, it's haunting. You know, it just the story itself is haunting, and then when you get out yeah. of the theater, it still haunts you. It stays with you. Yeah, and the music is perfectly done. Oh, it's, yeah. It, 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 it's very very beautiful music. It's very simple. Um, and it's a road picture, and I have a really, I have a real thing for road pictures. Well, let me ask like you, Coen Brothers films, because they all these new characters that you need on the road. Let me ask I, you. I'm interested. I've got it on my list yeah. to watch. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say uh, that scene where during the storm, when the little girl is up on the cliff, and across the raging river is the Kyle was uh, migrating, yeah. and. It's ghostly, and I think it's one of the most outstanding scenes I have ever seen. That's part of the reason the movie haunts me, I think. Well, yeah, because... They... Go ahead, I'm sorry, Tom. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Stuart. I, well, I was, was going to say, do you think that one of the reasons the paint, uh, you know, is based on the gentleman who's traveling the West, reading the newspaper to the illiterate, bringing them the news, and in this era of micro, you know, uh, micro news being delivered to us every second uh, of every day, that we have forgotten the peace of reading the newspaper and waiting for the news. And so um, I have heard some criticism in the film that it's long and maybe a little ponderous. And maybe they will have to step back and realize that maybe that's also the pace of the novel mm -hmm. and a, a pace of the drama that the writer was trying to bring across in terms of, you know, how we share and, and gain and give information, you know, share uh, what life is more like. It's not things happen instantly, but things also happen, you know, time is different in the in the 19th century West. Well, you know, well, I would, I would, I would definitely agree with you guys both, but I would say that that's also, it's really pointing to the, the, the the time that how people lived back then and yes it was to the illiterate but it was also to the to the people who were busy who basically got up before sunrise had their coffee and whatever they ate and got out into the field or did whatever their trade was and went home and ate dinner and went to bed because it was there weren't lights in your cabin or your little shack and they didn't have time to waste on, uh, or money to waste on a 10 cent newspaper or how much it ever cost and, and read. Some of them could, some of them didn't. But it was interesting that it, it was, it, it made them all human. Uh, because they were listening to human stories about other humans and relating to it. It reminded me a lot of that scene, the scenes in, uh, uh, Ride with the Devil where Toby McGuire as Dutchie is reading the bag of stolen 
uh, Union mail. Yeah. That uh, that the Union soldiers have written letters home to their family members or letters from home to the soldiers out on the front lines. And he reads those, and without realizing it, they all become human. Yes, they're on opposite sides, but you know what? A lot of the things these guys are saying are things we've thought or we've said or we've written home or people have written home from home to us. You know, and I think that's what made it human. And that's why the city... Another interesting thing about this, too, is that there, you know, Reconstruction Texas uh, has been a theme in many, many movies. But this is the first time they ever painted Reconstruction Texas like it really was. Uh, and just just another point to what uh, uh, Todd was saying, uh, Reconstruction Texas, they didn't have newspapers in these little towns either. So you might have literate people, but these are people that, one, there's no entertainment. They've got the Union Army down there. This is before the carpetbaggers have, have, have flocked in. And it's oppressive. And the hatred and the uh, resentment that the Texans feel towards these interloping Yankees is, is palatable in the movie. All right, we're going to do uh, another commercial break here. Uh, this is Amel Franzi's Voices of the West. It's Movie Saturday. We are talking about... Um, what makes a great screen call? A screen call? Screen play. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> and I am trying to get our phones put back together here because all kinds of things are happening, and I think we're back together. We're with, sounding good. Oh, yeah, we're sounding Harry? great. Yes, sir. I got yeah. you. I got everybody. I'm back. All right. Uh, yeah. Little, I'm back, too. A little phone fart there, but uh, we'll be back with much more of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West right after these very important messages. Don't go away. Stay tuned. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. The Polash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Polash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, first. First, contact the Paul Ash Management Company today at paulashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Paul Ash Management Company, property managers you can trust. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. 
The Tucson Trap and Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 ski fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting plays courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSki.com. Hi everyone, it's Susan McRae and welcome to Chaparral Roundup. As you know, I've postponed the March event to October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd so we can all relax, have a great time with great dinners, a great lunch at the White Stallion Ranch, Q&A panels, screenings of a couple of our favorite High Chaparral shows, the documentary of Kent McRae so we can honor him during his favorite reunion. And we have a great silent auction to benefit the Robert F. Hoy and Kiva Hoy charity at the Tucson Medical Center. If you're already registered for March, you're automatically registered for October. But if you're not, you better register by September 17th. I look forward to seeing you all, and so does Don, with his confessions of an acting cowboy. You'll have fun. See you in October for the Chaparral Roundup at Lodge on the Desert in Tucson, Arizona. You're looking for trouble, Donovan? You aim to help me find some? This is the Voices of the West. We're back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles. David Layton is uh, guesting with us, as is Stuart Rosebrook, and uh, that, that, they're all by telephone. That little last little bit there we heard uh, just before the High Chaparral theme, uh, that was from uh, the, uh, Who Shot Liberty Valance, and uh, that, that was a good screenplay, I would reckon. Yeah. Um, Very good. Want to jump on that one? I just, I just want to mention quickly, oh, uh, while David is here, on the way driving out on Arizona Illustrated uh, on the radio PBS version, they did a little piece with him on uh, Barnum Hill, which is a landmark out at Reed Park. And I've got to say that it was well done. David was articulate. I could actually understand what he was saying, and it made sense. You know, the amazing thing is, I'm not sure what I said. But as long as they, you know, mixed it up, made it sound good, I appreciate that. You know, being on NPR is always kind of a bonus, you know. Yeah. Well, you could, you could tell that they, that they moved your words around and, and you know, added a little depth and, and resonance to your voice, you know, to make you sound like, you know, really, really impressive. Well, to be completely honest with you, um, 90% of the interview was actually someone else pretending to be me. The beginning part was like, you know, I have uh, David Layton on uh, from the Arizona Daily Star to talk about Barnum Hill. After that, it's just someone else filling in their information. Yeah. The correct information. The correct, yeah. <laughs> I gave a bunch of bad information, and they're like, yeah, this is not going to work. So they brought in someone else and just introduced me. Oh, and then, But I, I appreciate that. You mean it was, the, the information was actually correct? I thought it. I thought it was a fiction episode. Oh, okay. Wow, fantastic. All right. Well, back, back to the top. Let's, let's also let's also remember the old rule that it's it's good not to drink before doing the show. 
So, you know, in general. I've got coffee here. I'm drinking coffee. Whether or not you're listening, talking, or coming. I've never had Um, a problem with that, Todd. (laughs) Harry, I didn't say that everyone has a problem with it. I said some have a problem with it. They call his job. You have a problem with it. They call his job a mixer for a reason. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's there's one great thing about drinking bourbon on a train with Harry. is The more bourbon you drink... Uh, the more uh, Harry's Harry's sea legs become train legs. There you go. There uh, you go. Yeah, and no matter how bad my head's bobbing around, I swear to God, Harry makes more and more sense every moment. See, passes. see, there. So, I'll there have to go. try that yeah. with Harry. Not to mention, he when he when when you're sober, Harry's walking on the train. He's having a hard time walking. Yeah. When you've had enough bourbon on the train, Harry's dancing. Did you see? So there you know, you these are all some of the. Stories. And this, and I would and love to throw away. Go ahead, Harry. Oh, I say, and this is why I go by train now <laughs> instead of flying. Yeah. Uh, I would say that I'd love to throw in the script of Jubal. Yes. With uh, oh. Delver Daves directed uh, and co-wrote, um, you know, with Russell Hughes. And I just, you know, the character development in that film is there from the first moment. It's They're all wound up and ready to go. The, the, we don't have to be introduced to anybody because we get it. The, almost every character needs no introduction. We we get them from the moment we see them. Uh, I think, and mainly, and they're all, of course, great actors, but I and of course, great director. But I think that Rod Steiger steals that film. Um, he always has, and uh, you know, it's just in, in the writing, his motivation comes through of what is your hatred of this newcomer. Where does it? Where is it coming from? What is it? And it's deep, deep, and he finally exposes it. Um, I would also say another one is the Oxbow incident. Oh yeah, that hey, is. Hey Todd, to mention so the screenwriter is Russell Hughes. For those of me who want to go back and take a look a little bit more at who the writer was, the primary writer of Jubal, and who ends up in moving to television to write a lot on Maverick and Sugarfoot, have them will travel, but. Uh, he died pretty prematurely in 1958. He's 48 years old in Studio City, and uh, but uh, had a pretty big uh, career and worked with a lot of major directors. And had, it appears right after Jubal, he moved into television, maybe kind of settling down, you know, into a, a career there in the Valley. And uh, dies prematurely, but uh, and, yeah, and wrote a lot of television, as you say, and you couldn't. You couldn't be writing trash to have gotten that many scripts to be made on television on a weekly series. Which is easier? Which is easier to write for, in your estimation, for television or for the movie? I would say television. Well, you know, if you look at um, where you go back to Stan Peckinpah, who wrote a lot of Gunsmoke and Mm -hmm. wrote a lot of television. You know, when you fine tune your your character and your story into a half hour, which is what about twenty two to twenty six minutes, mm-hmm. and into those short plays uh, into your character development, I think that um, uh, um, you know those um, there's a you know to make a career a lot harder to make your career as a screenwriter than it is as a television writer. Obviously, but um, I think that uh, that era is one reason so many of those westerns from the um, 
1950s and early 60s really hold up is the writing is so strong. Those writers knew their craft, knew how to put together a half-hour show that had, you know, A, B, and C stories and arc them up and uh, conclude them in, uh, you know, 26 minutes, whatever the time frame was. So um, those guys had a lot of, uh, probably grew up in their early years also writing for radio. I think that that's one reason why some of those, many of the scripts from the 30s through the 60s, early 70s, remain so strong because many of those writers got their, earned their chops in college and or not even going to college, writing radio. Exactly, because and, you can... Um, you can you can have that movie on in the background and hear the dialogue and imagine exactly what's going on. Well, you know, there's another uh, factor too. It's like a short story writer and a novelist. Uh, mm-hmm. The skill that it takes to do a short story is a whole different set of skills than the novel. And but if you look at, especially during the 30s, how many of the really some of the classic westerns came out of short stories or uh, to be continued in next month, next month's magazine, yeah, that's that's a factor there. The, the serial writers, yeah, exactly. I mean, and uh, you know these guys, well, I'll, you know, like uh, stagecoach. You know, that's a perfect example. A short story, that, and sometimes it's been said that sometimes it's easier to adapt a short story to a movie than it is to cut a mo- novel down to fit the movie. And, but Jubal, like Todd said, is a perfect example of someone who took, a, and I, I loved the book, and it, it, was a, it was a perfect rendition, you know, of multi-hours of reading into a little over an hour of movie. Stuart, talk about the process, please, of converting a, a book uh, into a screenplay. Yes, yes. Well, um, you know, give you a, a good example that um, is a book called Haunted Yo um, that Ruth um, E. Hill wrote. It was a big, big bestseller. Um, and uh, my, my dad would give you, just because I know this example, that she lived with the Sioux and um, they supported her in writing this big book about multi generational uh, Sioux story. And it was a uh, um, Warner Brothers uh, optioned it, hired my dad to do about nine hours, supposed to be the roots of, um, of the American Indian experience, and they were going to film it uh, kind of following up from my report fighting more forever, they were going to film it all up in South Dakota and North Dakota and um, so they, with, with the Hill uh, and many, many times if the screenwriter, if the novelist or the historian is uh, living they will work with the screenwriter and with the director in advising them on how to combine characters to, uh, if it's a film or miniseries, and how to uh, you know, bring bring that novel into dramatic, uh, you know, onto, onto the film or television. And um, I think that uh, with the advent of the miniseries in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, we think about Wilson Dove, um, it allowed the tele, uh, the teleplay author, the screenwriter, to um, tell a much more of the novel than they had than they would in um, uh, if they had only two hours to do so. And uh, but eventually, what happened is uh, with uh, Hantio, which uh, became this mystic warrior, is the Sioux. Someone riles up 
them from AIM. The film, the miniseries goes for nine hours, and they have to rewrite it and readapt it down to about, I believe, four hours. And they end up filming it in uh, California, and it's nothing like the original um, adaptation. And so the screenwriter in adapting it is really works very closely with the director and the budget. You know, that's the other thing that um, why short stories for many directors and producers um, uh, allow them to uh, have, let's say, greater liberty with the uh, um, with the final product. Dorothy Johnson's um, uh, one of her short stories. She has a very famous short story. Um, guys, uh, to, and then Three Tens of Yuma was a short story. By, and so that allowed the director and Glenn Ford and the writer to visualize it and broaden from what it originally is. What is the Dorothy Johnson short story that yeah. I am referencing um, that becomes a big Western? True Great, of course, the short novel. Um, uh, they, uh, the director is very famous, Henry Hathaway. You know, he's very famous for saying, when asked, why did you move a movie that takes a, a novel that takes place in Arkansas and Oklahoma to Wyoming? They said, well, most of the people in Arkansas haven't been to Wyoming. They won't know the difference. <laughs> it's also an arrogance uh, can also come about in the adaptation yeah. mm-hmm. of a screen of a novel where they move it to where they want it. It's affordable and um, it allows them to make the movie um, what they want to. Oh, Todd, what do you uh, from your experience with uh, Monty Loft? That is a very complicated novel to adapt into yeah. a screenplay. Uh, well, yes, absolutely. It was 13 stories. It started out as 13 different stories in the Saturday evening uh, Saturday evening post, uh, which Schaefer got such a got such a uh, response from that Saturday Evening Post editors came to him and they wanted him to write more and he said, no, let me think about that. And what he did was he turned it into a novel. He strung them all together and put an ending and a beginning on them. Uh, you know, at the end of the novel, Monty Walsh is almost 90 years old and he's still riding a horse. His horse is old and he's old and, and, and he has to get off the horse and walk it through town because town is now most towns have been taken over by cars. It's like 1905. So, uh, you know, that didn't translate into the novel because, you know, as John Ford said, you know, you need to take a short snapshot of someone's life and make that into a film. I don't want an entire wide shot. So they took a section of that and came up with the screenplay, which was... Um, the film that was made, and then again, the Tom Selleck was made again. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's unfortunately sometimes uh, a screenplay can, shall we say, become bigger than everybody else, and, you know, Hollywood has a tendency to then look up and go, well, let's put the hottest, newest, good looking guy in it. Oh. He doesn't really belong there. Yeah, exactly. You know, I can think of many, many, many instances of this, which I won't go into. Um, but, you know, I think we see it ever presently. John Wayne, even uh, in uh, as a producer, saw the advantageous side of that for the money-making side. I remember one of the first times uh, um, 
Elvis was maybe a second film, uh, they were the the studio came to the director and said, "Hey, we're going to make a uh, we're going to this new film that we're making. The star is going to be Elvis." And the director said, oh, "Oh my God, this guy he can't act." And on and on and on. Flaming Star. And yeah, and well, exactly. I was going to say that Flaming Star is one of the best examples of his good acting. But the response from the producer about whatever the film was, I think it might have been Keith Creole, was, um, you know what? Uh, we want box office. And exactly. you can't deny his box office draw. And that's not to mention, you know, uh, I, would, I would love to see anyone who wants to be critical of Elvis and his acting. Um, let's see who else can make 26 pictures in 10 years. Yeah. And have it as many successes in those films as he did. Uh, virtual, very few dogs, comparatively, to somebody who makes 26 films in 10 years today. First of all, it's unheard of. But also, it's not also important to realize that every one of those films had a huge amount of income or revenue from the soundtrack. Right. They were huge. Also, as well, and you know, so yeah. I, I think that's a good segue into the novel I was just mentioning, which is True Grit, and um, the story behind Hal Wallace outbidding John Wayne for the for the right to the book. The, the book was in galley form, and the Duke wanted to uh, purchase it. And Hal Wallace, who had been doing all those Elvis pictures, uh, outbid the Duke. He paid four hundred thousand dollars for the book in galley form. Wayne was extremely upset with him and said, why did you do this? He knew I wanted it. He said, look, you just, you Green Berets just bombed. I love you. I want to make this picture and I want you to star in it and I'm going to hire uh, one of three directors and um, I'm making this movie for you. And it's going to be either Hathaway, Hawks, or John Ford. And we know that Henry Hathaway is hired by Hal Wallace and he, just as you were talking about, box office Todd, Hal Wallace, top of the producer, understood the box office and says, you're the star, you're not going to direct it, you need a hit, <laughs> and um, and you are going to, um, and they turned it from being Maddie, and if you look at how they cast it, and they adapted the novel, it becomes a Richard Cogburn story, and we could spend a whole afternoon just speaking about True Grit and all the, why it was a hit, and all the underlying things of the film. There's a classic example, though, of uh, how Hollywood applied the novel, and then the Cohen brothers, what, uh, close to 50 years, 40 years later, 45 years later, uh, they say, well, we're going to make the real true grit. And, um, you know, for my money, you know, I think they did a great job, and I will always be a, a, yes. the both, original. Yeah, both, both movies were good. We've got to uh, do our final break here, guys. Uh, the hour's moving we're by. We're running over, aren't we? Um, moving by very quickly. We're talking about what makes a great screenplay. Our guest is Stuart Rosebrook of True West Magazine. His dad wrote uh, screenplay to uh, Junior Bonner, so he knows what and he's talking others. about. And several others. And several others. Well, many others. Yes, Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts, David Layton is with us. We'll be back with much more right after these important messages. Stick around. Here's 
Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right. It's called Horses Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horses Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horses Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horses Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horsesatoroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horsesatoroundrescue.org. Hi, this is Craig Morgan with a special message for all those who have served in the U.S. Army. The National Museum of the United States Army, to be built at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, will include the Soldier's Registry, an electronic record of Americans who have worn the Army uniform, recognizing their service. I've already added my story to the registry. I hope you'll add yours. To learn more and to make your story a permanent part of the National Army Museum, visit armyhistory.org. Read classic Western comics anytime at voicesofthewest.net. I want to hear the wind blow over my campfire, brushing the smoke away. Rolled in my blanket there by the campfire, waiting the break of day. I can listen to this stuff all day long. We got to do a show on that. That is just such great stuff. The great Johnny Bond, Open Range. Oh, you know, I've got a question for Todd and for Stuart. And that is, 
the miniseries because so many of those, you know, I'm thinking like Lonesome Dove, so many of those are a collaborative, you know, one screenwriter will do a segment, mm -hmm. another screenwriter will do a segment, and to tie them all together and and to keep them together so that they look seamless, that's that's a pretty interesting skill. Well, it is. You, I no, think. Go ahead, sir. No. Now, are you talking about a mini series or a series in which the the producers are overseeing a writing crew, like on High Chaparral, um, or a one writer team like John Wilder's Centennial, who really stepped. You know, I just actually had a conversation with John Wilder recently after the passing of Joe Byrne, uh, who's my dad's partner for many years. He um, uh, sadly passed away suddenly in December. And Joe's career went back to the 1950s with, in, uh, in Hollywood. Um, well, and, I, um, I was just going to uh, say, you know, it's, uh, I was thinking primarily along the line of a, a mini-series as opposed to a series, but then that also brings up, like, the uh, job of the story consultant who is there to make sure on a series and even on a mini-series that the continuity is, is there. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, one reason why you see in certain areas where you have someone like a David Walper um, or a uh, Norman uh, Rosemont um, or a Homie, uh, you know, we have very strong production companies. Some of them eventually become producer-writers, like, you know, if you look at uh, John Wilder, producer-writer. Um, but um, if you look at, let's say, a David Walper, um who had a great understanding of story and production and a vision for what he wanted, almost like, you know, uh, his own studio boss within the studio. Uh, Walter was able to bring in a creative team, um, and you're right, having the, the production designer, the director, uh, and his writer working together, um, and sometimes, you know, obviously bringing in another screenwriter if the first uh, draft doesn't work. But um, from my experience in the miniseries that um, I followed, it's many times it's it's one writer, but it's the producer director uh, team that is um, in television that has a much stronger, especially the producer in television, has a much stronger hand in the outcome of the screenplay versus the director in film. All right, we're about out of time here, Stuart. What's coming up next in uh, True West Magazine? Well, uh, in April, our cover story is going to be, we're looking back at um, with Tom Selleck of Quigley Down Under, Ooh. and uh, we're also going to be doing um, a big story on you know, the real story behind Quigley Down Under, and Phil Spangenberger has a story in this issue, on that issue on the, um, the real story behind the, that uh, Shiloh Sharp's rifle and how it became such a signature weapon, signature rifle for Western movies, mm -hmm. and on... The February-March issue, which is going on newsstands here in a couple of weeks, uh, has a big cover story by Art Burton on Bath Reeves with a big conversation on Bath Reeves and the Lone Ranger, which mm -hmm. I think will create conversation. At some point, maybe we'll be back on this show talking about the Lone Ranger and Bath Reeves. You know, you know, Stuart, we need, we need to have you back again because we need to do part three. Yes, definitely. Of, of this uh, of this. Uh, 
tone. I'm ready. <laughs> We're not going to do it on a movie Saturday, though. We'll just do it sometime within the month. But I'll be in touch with you, okay? And we'll do that. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Hey, thanks for joining us today. David, thank you. Yeah, thank Todd, you, guys. Thank you. Bunker, thank, thank you. you. Todd, Stewart, David, Harry, thank you all. All right. That's it for this edition of Amal Franzi's Voices of the West. 78, 79, 80 O's and head them out. So long, everybody. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West.